This is Eric Luton, pastor of the church at Ellerslie in Windsor, Colorado. The ministry of Ellerslie endeavors to once again see triumphant Christianity stride upon the stage of time, to see the church of Jesus Christ built strong to stand immovable in these times of sinking sand. We hope this podcast is an encouragement to your soul. If you would like to stream live or visit us in person or even support us financially, please go to ellerslie.com to learn more. The subtitle to this one is very, very important. That is remembering his mercy, which at first isn't going to seem to have anything to do with Liege. And yet I'm going to basically say, because I'm going to take this passage of scripture, Hebrews 6, 4 through 6, and I'm going to say, there's Liege right there. For whatever reason, the devil goes after this territory almost more than any other territory in the Bible and it's under siege all the time. It's under attack all the time. And as I get close to this, you're going to recognize that this has likely been a battle uh, territory in your own life. First Chronicles 21:13. the context, David has sinned. He has numbered his armies. He has done as other kings do. You see, the kings of, uh, of Israel have something that other kings don't. They have God Almighty as their god of battles and so as a result it really doesn't matter how many men you have how many horses and chariots you have that's what other kings have to lean on you see other kings their strength is in their in the power of their own right hand however david the strength that he has is in the power of god's right hand it's what god is capable of doing that he leans on and so as a result to number his armies is the equivalent of thinking that it's not up to God to win the battles for Israel. And so he is going to number his armies the way any other king would number his armies. But David, this has nothing to do. If you counted two, would it make any difference? Instead, a king back then had a susceptibility, and that is to number his armies so that he would feel powerful. We have the tendency to do the same. We look at the different things in our life, and we're like, okay, because of this, I feel strong. I have this much money in the bank account. As a result, I feel strong. We number things all the time as well, and yet we have the same secret David had. You see, our secret is in the right hand of Jehovah. We're Christians. We're not like the other nations or the other peoples around us. We're Christians. And so when this happens, Gad, the prophet, is going to come to David, confront him on it. It's a, you know, one of those tough moments, just like when you've been in, you know, uh, had Gad come to you, and you recognize you sinned. The question then is, so how do you want to be judged? And he gives three options. Uh, And this is David's amazing response. And David said to Gad, I am in great distress. Please let me fall into the hand of the Lord, for his mercies are very great, but do not let me fall into the hand of man. That's David's response. He was given three options. How do you want to be judged? It's one of these three ways. And he says, I'm in great distress. I just want to fall into the hands of the Lord. That's the safest place for him because he's a God of mercy. There's something about David and his response that is very, very important. And it's important to our message and it's important to you. David is going to be considered a man after God's own heart. You're going to see Saul, who is going to be rejected as king, and his life and his histories aren't pleasant. David, who is going to be, in a sense, accepted as king, he's going to be considered a good king who does that which is right in the eyes of the Lord. Saul is going to be considered a bad king, one who did evil in the sight of the Lord. 
And yet David, if you study his life, which the Bible seems to go out of his way, out of its way to make clear his life, it is pockmarked with casualty and failure. It isn't just this glittering story of a man that was perfectly righteous. It's actually full of all sorts of failure. That's important in where we're going today to recognize that what God deems right in his eyes isn't necessarily that which is without stumble or fall. It seems to have something to do with this, that David knows the mercies of God, and he understands how to humble himself in light of God's nature. So two directions for a fall. Into the hand of the Lord, which is David, the way David did it, and away from the hand of the Lord. So if you're going to fall, make sure you fall the right direction. Introducing Liège, Belgium, a special place marked for attack. So the Germans in World War I are going to, they need to take down France in their mind. They need to take down France before France is able to attack them. And uh, they want to attack France before Russia organizes its military forces and so they're, they're looking for a very quick blow, but the only way to get into France quickly is to go through Belgium. And the only way to get through Belgium is to go through Liège. And oh, the Germans have to make a decision, and they're going to do that, which is going to end up, in light of history, to be a colossal mistake. Because public opinion polls are going to go south uh, for the Germans because of what they're going to do. They're going to violate a peaceful nation that is, has no hostility towards anyone. And, you know, that, we're just minding our own business, too. We're sort of like Liège. It's like, hey, why in the world does it seem like world war takes place over my life? You ever had that uh, thought? And so if you feel a little like Liège, well, we all sort of, we're, we're the people. Uh, it's a special place marked for attack. This is a very interesting statement from Charles Spurgeon. So look, I put the date on it. That wouldn't be a typical thing for me to do, but you do know the sermon dates for Charles Spurgeon. So this is March 23rd, 1856. So World War I is going to uh, be in the early 1900s, right? So we're talking a, a long time. This is earlier than World War I, okay? And then in World War II, guess what's going to be another central figure? Uh, Belgium. Belgium is going to just make its way into World War I and World War II and all sorts of tragedy in, in both of those wars. So just listen to this in light of that. There are some spots in Europe which have been the scenes of frequent warfare, as for instance, the Kingdom of Belgium. Well, this isn't even talking about World War I and World War II, which might be called the battlefield of Europe. War has raged over the whole of Europe, but in some unhappy spots... Battle after battle has been fought. So there, is a scare, so there is scarce a passage of Scripture which has not been disputed between the enemies of truth and the upholders of it. But this passage, Hebrews 6, 4 through 6, with one or two others, has been the special subject of attack. This is one of the texts which have been trodden under the feet of controversy. And there are opinions upon it as adverse as the poles, some asserting that it means one thing and some declaring that it means another. So... Before we get into Hebrews 6, 4 through 6, uh, I'm going to give some backdrop, some ideas. Now, it seems like I'm, I'm going to World War I and World War II a lot. Well, that, it's called the Battle of Liege, you know, so it, it gives me an opportunity to draw out some World War I and World War II. 
But the evil warlords, so in World War II, we have two bad guys. Ironically, one is on supposedly the good side. Joseph Stalin is an ally, right? He's fighting against Adolf Hitler. But all of us know Joseph Stalin's a bad guy, right? So we have Adolf Hitler and Joseph Stalin, and you know we could give a chorus of boos. They're just bad guys. Uh, in every regard, they're symbolic in the last 100 years of evil. And so when you mention them, if, you said, if I said to you, you're a lot like Joseph Stalin, that would not be a compliment, okay? And all of us know that. We, we as the Ludi family, we're talking about uh, whatever happened with the descendants of Hit, the Hitlers. Uh, you know, it's like, could you imagine being a Hitler? Uh, so it's like your name is Bobby Hitler. But it's just like your last name is just sort of spoils the whole thing. And so do you do a name change? I mean, what, what do you do if you're, you know, like, uh, you know, Kenny Stalin? You know, it's like, ah, that's just awkward, right? So we have two evil warlords. Now, Joseph Stalin, here's a famous quote of his, a single death is a tragedy, a million deaths is a statistic. You know, and so here's this guy that's responsible for tens of millions of deaths. So obviously, to him, it's a statistic. It doesn't really matter, which is a good way of describing Joseph Stalin. So Joseph Stalin, in the midst of World War II, the Germans, the, the Nazis, are pushing into Russia, and it's desperate. It looks like Russia may fall. And uh, this is Soviet Russia. And so on June 27th, 1943, Joseph Stalin is going to issue a very specific order. It's called Order Number 227. And this is what it basically means. Not one step backward. So the officers that were second in line actually hold their guns at the front liners. So whoever's on the front line of battle, if they turn and take one step backwards, they're supposed to be shot. So then there's another line behind the officers. If they do not shoot, they get shot. This is order 227. No mercy. No mercy. If anyone in the Russian military takes one step backwards, I don't care what the reason is, but if you weren't commissioned from the highest place to take that step, you're a dead man. Whew. So I don't know how many of you feel comfortable uh, fighting for uh, Joseph Stalin, but that's some serious, serious, because if you take a step backwards, the guy behind you could be your buddy, but if he doesn't shoot you, he gets shot. And so, I mean, this creates a, you know, a tension. It's an it's a, uh, atmosphere of fear uh, that it creates, and it does cause an army not to take a step backward. I, I, you do need to applaud Stalin for creating a, a working system that, really was impressive. It was an impressive military system. Praise God, it's not the way the kingdom of heaven works. Joseph Stalin, here's what goes with his uh, Order 227. Panic makers and cowards must be liquidated on the spot, not one step backward without orders from higher headquarters. Commanders who abandon a position without an order from higher headquarters are traitors to the motherland. Okay, now the reason I'm bringing this up is because there are some of you that have been duped into thinking this is the way God is. And I'm here to tell you that there is a distinction between Joseph Stalin, Adolf Hitler, and God Almighty. And it's important that you know it. Hitler's Operation Lutich. Okay, so this is what brought this up in the first place. Is it's interesting because both Joseph Stalin and Hitler are going to do the same thing. They have the same order. Hitler doesn't call his order 227. 
but it's the orders that go with Operation Ludich. This is right after Normandy. The beaches of Normandy have been uh, broken uh, by the Allied forces. Huge victory uh, for, for those of us that are Allied fans, right? And uh, this is going to create a crisis. And Patton is making his way uh, through France. And Hitler sees a vulnerability where the Patton line is thin. So he is going to throw in everything in the kitchen sink to try and break Patton's line. And this is called Operation Ludich. Now, these are the same dates of the Battle of Liege back in World War I. And Liege and Ludich are the same thing. So what do you think Hitler's saying? He's saying, remember Liege? Remember what we did there? Remember how we broke them there? Let's remember and let's break them here. Okay, that's actually what he's saying. So it's sort of like, remember Liege. This is, everything about this sort of centers around this one memory of this haunting environment where the bad guys seem to say, let's take Liege. And what is the order? Not one step backward. It's the exact same mentality, the same spirit. You'd say whatever demon was in Stalin is in Hitler. It is weird. And in fact, they have an unspoken uh, respect for one another. They see each other's evil and they nod and they go, that's pretty good. That guy's, I don't want to be outdone in my evil by that guy. And so they both seem to amp up and try and compete with each other in evil. If, if Stalin is going to have a no step backward, I'm going to have a no step backward. You take a step backward, you're shot. And so what you see is both of these men are going to participate in the same mentality. So there's two sorts of leaders. Ones that kill the fearful on the spot and those that correct the fearful on the spot. There is a distinction between those. Even at first, you may not see it, but it's a big difference. Ones that find every excuse to reject and those that find every reason to rescue. You ever been around someone who seems to be looking for a fault? They're looking for a reason to reject something. That is a very, very different attitude than God has. So as a leader, God is not looking for a fault. That's called a fault finder. And you'll notice that the enemy is called the accuser of the brethren. The enemy is looking for faults, to seek out fault so that he can expose fault. This is actually not the way God works. However, many of us have been dealt an idea. I can tell you where it comes from. It comes from the fault finder himself to try and recast an image of how our God works and what sort of leader he is. There are ones that find every opportunity to condemn, and there are those that find every opportunity to restore. Very, very different uh, behavior between these two. And it's significant that we know which one is which. Which one falls into the camp of the enemy and which one falls into the camp of truth and righteousness? What sort of leader is Christ? Is he one that seeks excuses to destroy or one that will go to whatever links necessary to rescue? Now, hopefully, you could lean in with a very clear idea of which one he is. However, it's funny how these things can get muddled, and especially when we get to Hebrews 6, 4 through 6. It's like you need to know the nature of your God even before you arrive there because it's not going to change. Hebrews 6, 4 through 6 doesn't change the nature of our God. If anything, it establishes it. However, the language and the way it's written can cause a little trip and can cause a little fog bank. And the enemy will jump inside of that fog and try and reconfigure our entire idea of who God is. So Isaiah 42.3, what sort of leader 
is he, is Jesus? A bruised reed he will not break. That just in and of itself is quite a statement. In other words, you're talking about a gentleness that this one known as the Messiah is going to demonstrate. This Messiah is the perfect reflection. He's, when you see him, you're going to see the Father. So you're actually seeing God's very nature on display, that he, a bruised reed he will not break, and a sm- and smoking flax he will not quench. Now, there have been scholars throughout history which will say this is talking about the Pharisees and the fact that he's not just going to come and blast them with, uh, with fire and brimstone, but he actually will, since they have this flicker of truth, that he'll allow them to maintain. And here, here's probably the better way for us to look at it. Say that's true. Say this is about the Pharisees, that Jesus is not just coming to you know, break skulls and you know, punch in noses and, and do this, this type of a thing. Well, if he's going to show a mercy and a grace towards the Pharisees, how much more towards you? Okay, because this idea of a smoking flax is very, very important for us. And that's what I want to look at. The smoking wick, the flax is the way their wick was made. And so if you've ever seen one of those wicks, it's like sort of out. It's like dying, and it just gives off smoke. And ironically, it's very acrid. So it's, it's not healthy even. And so what it's giving off is not even good. It's not light. It's not really function as it ought to function. And yet, what you see, and I give you the description uh, from Charles Spurgeon here of what a smoking flax is. A smoking flax represents a state in which there is a little good. Now, for each of us to recognize that we may not be in a position of strength, we may not be contributing a lot, we may be bumbling through our life, we may not actually look that impressive even to ourselves. We don't even have a lot of bragging points when it comes to what we have done for God. And yet... We have an inclination. We are desirous to shine light. It's like, I don't see any light. All I see is some acrid smoke. But it's a signal of something. There is something. That candle is trying to do something. God sees it. He sees something there. And that smoking flax, he will not quench. But what if his soldiers step backward due to fear? Okay, does God have an order 227? Does he have an Operation Ludich? Not one step backward. Is that how God functions? It's interesting because everything in Scripture is going to say don't take a step backward. I mean, why would you backslide? Okay, what, does God encourage backsliding? There isn't one military leader in the world who would encourage backsliding. Okay, There's not a military leader that's going to say, men, and when it gets tough, run. Okay, that's a bad military leader, and God's a good military leader. However, there's a difference between when they step back because of fear and how a good military leader handles it. Because he doesn't foster it, but does he shoot it on spot? Is it instant judgment because of that? Important question. What would God do about such a mistake? It's interesting because we actually have a direct answer in Scripture from that. Isaiah 35, 3-4, Strengthen the weak hands and make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who are fearful-hearted, be strong, do not fear. Behold, your God will come with vengeance, with the recompense of God. He will come and save you. And so as a result, what we see is when God is giving a commission for someone else to do something, like here's what you're supposed to do. When someone steps back, what's an officer supposed to do? You can just sort of see it, grab them by the shoulders. 
and say, be strong, be strong. In other words, there's a correction. We're not quick to shoot, we're quick to correct. We're quick to exhort, we're quick to encourage. You see, the kingdom of heaven is made up of this very construct. When the Holy Spirit deals with us, he doesn't come with, that's it, I've had enough of you. No, he comes close and he says, fear not. He immediately comes in to exhort and to encourage. If he sees us move in this direction, what does he do? He comes in to correct the movement. Not to shoot, but to exhort unto a correction of soul so that we can once again engage and move forward. Has God issued an order number 227? Does he bear similarity with Hitler and Stalin? Mm, interesting question Eric is posing there. Uh, I could answer it for you, but I'm hoping you can land your feet without me giving the obvious answer uh, to that. So visiting Liège. So let's take a trip to Belgium uh, in Scripture, the Belgium of Scripture, okay, where we're going to hang out and we're going to go to this ancient battle site where it's like, as you know, many battles have been fought right here, you know, and this... this uh, once was a wall and, you know, Eric Ludendorff. Guess where Eric Ludendorff became famous? It was Liège, okay? So everything about Liège, it means Ludi, you know, and it's Eric Ludendorff was there becoming famous. Everything about it is sort of weird for me, right? So we're visiting Liège, and I'm showing you things, and here's, a, you know, a monument of this. and Perusing the battle site where many a soldier has died. Hebrews 6, 4 through 6. To be able to do this, I'm going to go back to Hebrews 5, verse 8. Okay, so we're actually quite a ways before it, but I want to give you context so you know what is happening before we get there, okay? Because this statement in Hebrews 6, 4 through 6 has a context, and it's not just stated, okay? It, 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 something is happening by the time we get there. So in this, we, we have a flow, and I'm catching it right in the flow, but if you've read Hebrews, you know this, that the writer of Hebrews, it's always tough because we can't say the writer of Hebrews, we can't say who the writer of Hebrews is, we just have to call him the writer of Hebrews, okay, the W-O-H. And uh, so the writer of Hebrews is taking us on this incredible journey to show us how the Old Testament is revealing Christ and all, the, all these articles of the temple and how all these things are showcasing Jesus. I mean, it's beautiful, right? And that's what we're in the middle of. It's beautiful. Everyone's happy. Okay, all of us are in awe, and we're just about to get to a battle site? I mean, it doesn't even make sense. Why is this a battle site? We're in awe of what Jesus Christ has done. So it says, though he, Jesus, was a son, yet he learned obedience by the things which he suffered. And having been perfected, he became the author of eternal salvation to all who obey him, called by God as high priest, according to the order of Melchizedek, of whom we have much to say, and hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers. So you see this flow where they're talking about all these things and they get to Jesus being the high priest and they get to Melchizedek and it's almost like Melchizedek causes the, the writer of Hebrews to go, yeah, and I, I'd love to tell you more about him, but you guys have a problem. You're dull of hearing. And so that seems to change the entire flow of what, it, what he's talking about. He says, you need someone to teach you again the first principles of the oracles of God, and you have come to need milk and not solid food. For everyone who partakes only of milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, for he is a babe. 
But solid food belongs to those who are of full age, that is, those who by reason of use have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. We're going to have a change of chapters here, which it's always strange when they change a chapter right in the middle of an argument, and it starts with therefore, right? But uh, these weren't in there originally. They're not uh, divinely placed chapter changes. And so at the very start of of Hebrews 6, we have therefore. Leaving the discussion of the elementary principles of Christ, let us go on to perfection, not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God, of doctrine of baptisms, of laying on of hands, of resurrection of the dead, and of eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits. Here's our line. This is verse 4. We just arrived in Liege. For For it is impossible for those who were once enlightened and have tasted the heavenly gift and have become partakers of the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come, if they fall away, to renew them again to repentance, since they crucify again for themselves the Son of God and put him to an open shame. For the earth which drinks in the rain that often comes upon it and bears herbs useful for those by whom it is cultivated receives blessing from God, but if it bears thorns and briars, it is rejected and near to being cursed, whose end is to be burned. But beloved... We are confident of better things concerning you. Yes, things that accompany salvation, though we speak in this manner. Welcome to the battle site, guys. You see, for you, you're like, eh, what's the big deal? Well, that's great. There's some of you in here that are like, yep, spent a lot of time there. Ruminated on that passage probably way too much, which is why we need to sort of help each other through this, because that is the word of God. And to diminish it from being the Word of God or to say, well, since you struggle with it, let's just throw it out of the Bible. Let's just not even look at it. That doesn't help anyone either. Because anyone who is an honest Christian knows that that is just as much a part of the Bible and just as much the Word of God as any other part. And if you do throw it out, well, doesn't it make sense that you you could throw out any other part as well? And as a result, we have to be able to appropriate this. We have to be able to digest this and understand God. Help me understand your heart and your mind through this. So let's uh, get our observations out on the table. Number one, the writer is explaining the mysteries of the Old Testament and how they showcase Jesus. That's Hebrews 5, 8 through 9. The writer reaches the topic of Melchizedek and acknowledges that he still has much to say about this topic, but since his audience is dull of hearing, he will need to restrain himself from continuing on. That's Hebrews 5, 10 through 11. And then the writer, this is the third little observation, the writer pivots right here on this point of dull hearing, seemingly moved by a holy passion to see his audience remain, to not remain dull of hearing any longer. You ever seen that in your own conversation? Like as a teacher, I I know it very well. It's like I'm teaching along and then suddenly I get a bee in my bonnet over something. It's like, it's not really what I'm talking about, but it needs to be stated. Okay, so then I go into my little bee in the bonnet, and I let, every, you know, let it fly around and sting a few people, and then I come back to my topic, right? Uh, number four, the writer enters into an entirely new line of thinking that centers around his audience breaking out of their immature, baby-like state of development. Number five, the writer declares that, God willing, they will be moving out of this baby state and onward in their maturity. That's Hebrews 6.3. And then, this is going to be important, guys, right here, number six. With classic parental candor, the writer uses what could be termed a parental shock statement to stir his audience to take their rare opportunity as children in the kingdom of heaven more seriously. 
Number seven, the writer reinforces his PSS, his parental shock statement, by reminding his audience that being unfruitful ground leads to every evil, while being fruitful ground is the entire point of Christ's redemption. And then finally, number eight, the writer concludes that in spite of his rather dramatic parental shock statement, that he in no way expects them to fall away. But it is merely reminding them of the glorious reality and potential of walking this narrow way, and that's Hebrews 6, 9, well out of the territory of the battle area. And so as a result, even though it's going to conclude with that, oh, we've forgotten that it concludes with that. We're stuck in Hebrews 6, 4 through 6. And as a result, it's important that we know how to navigate that. So first, I want to give you some background on what a parental shock statement is. If you're a parent in here, technically, if you've even been parented, so all of us probably know what one is. We've just never called it that, okay? But a parental shock statement. Here, this is interesting, but you know, I've been going through the Old Testament at a very, very fast pace. By the way, I finished it on the way in uh, today, so it took me 53 days uh, to get through the Old Testament, and that's longer than I thought it was going to take me because I'm trying to go through it quicker, right? So, you know, you can go through it slow. That's, everyone can do that. But to go through it quick, that's hard. 53 days. I'm still disappointed in myself. 53 days to get through just the Old Testament. It's a huge book. And if, if I was going to say it, here's what I would say. God uses parental shock statements a lot in the Old Testament. And he'll be like, aha, this is what you're going to get. And then... The next statement almost, or a couple chapters later, is like, I am so excited to give you mercy. It's like, wait a minute, wait a minute. God, I thought you were going to do this and this and this. He will, but he wants to give mercy. And so what you're going to see throughout the whole Bible is this God who is just, who hates sin, but who knows that mercy triumphs over judgment. Okay, so what is a parental shock statement? Why are they utilized? How do they work? Mm, let me give you a couple and we'll sort of put those pieces together. So here's parental shock statement. This is just sample number one. The kid, to the kid that is moving his peas around on his plate. Mm -hmm, that's some of you know that that's you, right? So here's how they work. Look, this is, this is what a parent does. <laughs> Look. There are loads of kids that don't have food to eat tonight. Haitian kids, it's like the Ludi family. You know, a lot of families go to Africa. The Ludi family goes to Haiti, you know, with our illustrations. Haitian kids usually have food to eat once every four days. If you choose not to eat this food, you will starve. This is the only food you're going to get. If I were you, I would deeply appreciate what you have and demonstrate your thankfulness by eating every pea on your plate. You are showing tremendous disrespect to all those starving kids out there that wish they could eat those peas. Some of you are like, this is almost hitting too close to home. <laughs> Some of the parents in here are like, what in the world? Did he like record that? How, did, how does he know I said that? Let's give another uh, parental shock statement sample. So this is sample number two. To the kid that is complaining about needing to study math. Uh-huh, there's some guilty parties in here. Look, <laughs> there are loads of kids that don't even have the opportunity to go to school. I, for instance... Kids in Haiti dream of going to school and getting an education. If you reject this amazing opportunity sitting in front of you, you will end up dumb. 
This is the only education you're going to get. If I were you, I would deeply appreciate what you have and demonstrate your thankfulness by giving your very best effort to learn. You are showing tremendous disrespect to all those impoverished kids out there that wish they could have an opportunity to go to school and learn math. And some of you are thinking, it it doesn't work on me. I didn't fall for that. So Eric, the amateur, I certainly would not win the gold medal when it comes to parental shock statements. Eric's had some parental shock statements that weren't necessarily as fine-tuned as some of those. I mean, those were very impressive ones. Uh, let's see, what are some of the ones I've, I've said? Uh, they usually, if Leslie's lingering near, they don't last very long, and Leslie deflates my parental shock statements, so they don't like work their wonders in my kids, which is supposed to bring about a repentance and a clear vision of the terrors that follow if you don't you know, do this. So I remember we have this wainscoting downstairs uh, in the basement, and one of the kids, I think it was crayon or pencil, you know, had it on the, and they're not allowed to do anything on this wainscoting, okay? Once it's damaged, it's, it's like damaged, right? And it's not very easy to repair. And so I came down, and there, there it was again. There, there it was again. All right, and I got all the kids in. All right, guys, if I ever see you putting crayon or pencil on the wainscoting, you're going to be in your room for a week without food and water. And Leslie's sort of like standing there going, oh, really? (laughs) That's like what she says. I'm in the middle of a juicy parental shock statement that's supposed to bring terror to my audience, and instead, Leslie totally undermined it. We're at uh, Disneyland, and if any of you have ever gone to Disneyland, it's fairly expensive, okay? And it's a big deal to get your whole family, especially when you have a big family. There's eight of us, okay? So this is a big deal. And we were having some challenges, okay? And this is when Eric decides to whip out one of his parental shock statements. And it was something like, if you don't stop doing, I don't remember what it was, then we're all leaving uh, Disneyland. I and mean, we're, we're going back to the car. And Leslie sort of looks at me like, oh, really? So we just got here, and we're going to leave Disneyland because of, you know, whatever this was. And it's like, hey, you know, a parental shock statement only works if you let it linger a little. You have to let the weight of judgment linger in the atmosphere so the child awakens from their stupor of selfishness to say, yes, Daddy, I realize. What am I doing? I'm in Disneyland. This is where I should be. I am supposed to be happy today. I'm supposed to be a servant to my family. I'm supposed to be saying thank you, thank you, thank you to my parents, right, for spending all that money, sacrificing in so many ways to get me here. See, that's what a parental shock statement is supposed to do. (laughs) Eric has a little refinement to do to his parental shock statements. They don't always come out as as good as I wish. I'm not even going to ask Leslie for some other illustrations, because I'm sure she does. I think my my kids have a lot of them, too. What was that one I said uh, in Florida this last time? So we're walking along and we're like looking at lights. This is during the Christmas season. And uh, one of the kids was wandering off ahead. And I, you know how you, you try and come up with something that's going to sound meaty, like a parental shock statement? So I said, so-and-so, you better stay with us. Otherwise, go to sleep. 
And unfortunately, one of my other kids heard it, so they're like, did you hear what daddy said? So he immediately go to, did you hear what daddy said? Because they all laugh at my parental shock statements. Like, he, he said to so-and-so that if they don't stay with us, then to go to sleep. And then I hear this laughter behind me. I'm like, my parental shock statements are not working as they ought, okay? So the goal of the parental shock statement, to stir a child to fresh awareness, renewed vigor, and revived action. So there is a reason why we need to see our judgment. There is a reason why we need to see the pit of hell in front of us. And why it's important, even for us as Christians who are not going there, to be reminded of the preciousness of what we have. And that there is only one means of salvation. If you try and go anywhere else, you're not gonna find it. It's like if you don't eat those peas, you're gonna starve. Well, we all know that that is an overstatement in that matter of food. Of course, you could just eat something else, you know, after the meal, right? That's what the kid's thinking. However, when you recognize that there is still a truth baked into that, this food is what you survive off of. If you take the food that you've been given and you reject it, you starve. And that's the facts. And yet, what it's meant to do is to stir and to awaken a recognition of appreciation. Even though it is a shock statement. Parental shock statement sample number three. The Ludi kid that doesn't understand the privilege of being a Ludi kid. Okay, this is good. This is good. You guys will like this one. For it is impossible for those... Now, this is based on the same grammar as Hebrews 6, 4 through 6, okay? For it is impossible for those who were once born into the family of Ludi and have been supplied the parental covering of Eric and Leslie, received the love of their Christian home, and found the blessing of the inheritance commonly shared by all Ludi children, if they were to fall away from their place in the Ludi family to ever enter back in through the womb of Leslie and re-enter the Ludi home. They have one birth in and no other. And this is my little add-on to help bring clarity. So, to not take advantage of that one opportunity to be a Ludi kid is the height of insanity. Okay, now, obviously you can change that out for the kingdom of heaven. The Ludi family isn't as impressive, right, to be a part of. However, there's one avenue in. Now, we just happen to have four adopted kids, which makes it harder, right, to explain it this way. But this is, in a sense, the concept. There is one womb through which you can enter into this kingdom to reject that one entrance, to turn away from it, to say, look, I don't need that entrance, is the epitome of insanity. There is only one means into this kingdom, and you have it. Why would you neglect it? Why would you look anywhere else? There is no other means to get in. So if you reject the one entrance, there's only one way. The writer of Hebrews, the W-O-H, is parental shock statement, because that's what this is. This is a parental shock statement. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to write down what the writer of Hebrews says in bold, and then I'm going to give you an amplified understanding. If they shall fall away, and now here's Eric's uh, amplified. If they shall reject the one means of salvation, the one avenue of life, the one way into the throne of grace, and then this is what the writer of Hebrews says, then it is impossible to renew them again unto repentance. So here's uh, Eric's Amplified. Then it is impossible to get them into this amazing grace another way. 
and this is the writer of Hebrews, seeing they crucify themselves, the Son of God afresh, and this is Eric's Amplified, seeing they seek an additional sacrifice and request for a salvation via a different means, but the one and only sacrifice of Christ. And then this is the writer of Hebrews, and put him to an open shame, and then this is Eric's Amplified, and hold with contempt the word of God, his promises, his loving labor on the cross, his powerful resurrection, his Holy Spirit's invitation, and the precious grace available only via faith in his shed blood. So here's our line, because I know, I understand what's going on. This is the zinger line. If they shall fall away, it is impossible. Okay, once you have that, and the enemy wants to take the grammar here, and he wants to get you clouded. He wants to bring a fog bank over your soul. Because what's the key question then? Did I fall away? Because if I fell away, it is impossible. <laughs> Once you get into that little cycle, whoo, you're under the bus. So what does it mean to fall away? Have I fallen away? Can I fall away? <laughs> now, one of the challenges of this, which I am going to do my best to steer clear of, is the Calvinist Arminius dimension to this, Okay. Because I see that as not being beneficial in it. I don't think that that particular, now for those of you that don't know what that is, I almost want to say praise God, and I don't really want to try and draw it out. And yet, there are other dimensions to this that can create a stumble as well. And what I want to say is I believe that no matter Calvinist or Arminius, the answer is still the same in this, and that's what I want to focus on. So sorry for those of you that are now deeply intrigued by what I just said. Hopefully you're not. There seems to be something that cannot be recovered. Okay, so in Scripture, let's, let's be honest, for those of us that have studied Scripture, there seems to be something that when it happens, there's no recovery from it. It's like, oh, I mean, they're dead. There's no hope now. And there's multiple occasions of that. I'm going to give two of them to show you this idea. Hebrews 6, 4 through 6 is one of them. If they fall away, it is impossible to renew them again to repentance. Whoo, that's some stiff language, which obviously causes us that tremble before the word of God to say, whoa, okay. Now that's a parental shock statement that is a doozy of one. It's like the last thing I want to do is fall away. The problem is what the enemy does with that is he says, but you've fallen away. And once that enters into the thought, well, then what do you do? You conclude, well, then it is impossible to renew me again to repentance, and as a result, now you're in the stew. And how do you get out? Okay, so that's one of them. The second one is Mark 3, 28 through 30. Truly I tell you, says Jesus, people can be forgiven all their sins and every slander they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. They are guilty of an, an eternal sin. Wow. All right, you got, now some of you are like, how is this helpful, Eric? I was fine until you brought up these scriptures. Well, actually, I, I think this will help you, okay? So these scriptures don't disturb you in the way that they are not intended to. There is a proper way that they're supposed to disturb us. That's what a parental shock statement is. But I don't want my kids actually thinking that I don't want them to enjoy Disneyland. I don't want them to think that they're rejected as my kid because we went to the car. I, don't, I want them to awaken from their selfish stupor. I want them to say, you know what? What am I doing being dull of hearing? I should be pressing forward in my maturity. I have one shot at this thing called life. I want to honor my Father in heaven who gave me life. 
what am I doing sitting on my thumbs? That's the point of Hebrews 6, 4 through 6. And yet the point that the devil has for it is Stalin's 227. He's got a gun aimed at you. Say, hey, hey, step backward. You see, that's not at all what God is saying. And so as a result, we need to bring the whole of Scripture in to testify. Bring in all the witnesses. God, what does the rest of Scripture say? We need to know what you are saying here, because it will not contradict the rest of Scripture. That's the way Scripture works. It all works together. Now, that does not mean that if God is saying, if you fall away, it is impossible to find a place of repentance. It does say that. So we have to say that's the Word of God. So now we need context for that. What is that something that cannot be recovered? Okay, so I'm going to very simply give it to you. When it says the sin against the Holy Spirit, or the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, there is one means to enter into the kingdom of heaven. Can we agree on that? And that's established many, many times throughout uh, the Bible and throughout the New Testament. There is one sacrifice. There is one way. There is one door. There is one vehicle to get you to the right hand of the Father, to bring you into his presence, to restore right relationship, one. So, and it says in Scripture, in that same context, anyone who sins against the Son, against Jesus, every sin is forgivable. Every sin. That is an incredible statement that we oftentimes don't see that part. But there is one thing that is an eternal sin that there is no recovery from, and that is the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, or the sin against the Holy Spirit. Who is the one entrusted with this message to tell you about the mercy of God, about the hope of God, about the avenue of salvation, and that is the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the delivery guy. He is the messenger. And so as a result, it doesn't matter what condition you find yourself in, guess who's coming to you? The Holy Spirit. And what is he coming to you with? Mercy. He's coming to you with hope. If you reject the message of the Holy Spirit, is there another message? If you reject what the Holy Spirit is bearing witness to, that there is one means of salvation, and it's right here, God loves you, but you need to humble yourself. You need to let go of what you are clinging to, your false gods, and you need to repent of those and believe. If you reject the one messenger, the Holy Spirit, and you sneer at him, and you devalue that messenger and the message that he is bearing, is there any other messenger and message that can save you? No. So if you die rejecting that messenger, what do you have left? Nothing. It is an eternal sin. When you reject the Holy Spirit, the one who is taking from all that Christ did to bring to you, is there anything else when you die that can still reach you? That is why the significance and the weight is there. To reject the Holy Spirit, Jesus is going to die for us, but then he's going to give us the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is sent to bring us to a place of conviction and convincing so that we would yield our life and say, yes, I will receive that mercy. So what is that something that cannot be recovered? The rejection of the Holy Spirit's message to us. Repent, believe, humble yourself, give over your confidence to Jesus. He wants you. He loves you. If you reject that, there's no other way in. So if it is not that something that you have done, then what? So imagine that we sort of classify the something. 
the rejection of the Holy Spirit's message to you, the rejection of the love of Jesus, the rejection of the mercy of Jesus, if that is the one thing that has no ability to be forgiven because it is a rejection of the forgiveness itself, then anything else is forgivable. Mark 3, 28 through 30. Now, ironically, this is in the context of that one statement. And it's a pretty amazing statement here. Truly, I tell you, people can be forgiven all their sins and every slander they utter. Huh, not many of us focus on that little piece. Isn't it funny? That piece just sort of gets clouded over. And yet, that's what Jesus is saying. However, the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, that's an eternal sin. So as you begin to grip this in your soul to recognize that basically in this life, there is mercy that is extended to you. But you still have to receive it. If you don't eat the peas, you starve. If you don't take the math lessons, you're dumb, right? That's the same way. If you don't take the one means of salvation, he is offering you mercy in your situation right now. I don't care what the devil has told you about it. Oh, he doesn't want you back. He does want you back which is the reason you want to come back. The Holy Spirit is working to woo you. And if you are awakened and stirred to say, but God, I don't feel worthy. You never were. To recognize the way we honor him is by returning. The way we honor him is by humbling ourselves. The way we honor him is, is by falling into his hand as David did. Falling away. Have I done that? So we're going to, well, this is a flashback. Two directions for a fall. Into the hand of the Lord and away from the hand of the Lord. So to pipto and to parapipto. You guys get a little Greek lesson here. So pipto, uh, I'm going to stick it over here, okay? Parapipto, we're going to stick it on the left. That's because, you know, everything that is sort of darker is over here. Now, it's, I'm not saying that pipto is good, okay? But I'm going to put it on the good side at least, okay? To pipto and to parapipto. To pipto, to fall, but into the merciful hand of the Lord. Okay, so when you fall, Eric Ludi has made many mistakes while declaring to be in Christ. I have stumbled, I've fumbled, I've spoken things that were not in character and in keeping with the kingdom pattern. But do I have any hope? When I stumble, I always want to stumble into his mercies. I want to stumble into his grace. I don't want to stumble away from that to say, God, I don't want you to heal me. I don't want you to forgive me. I don't want, I, I'm fine if you reject me. And some of you are like, who would do that? Mm. There's a lot of people that don't care at all about being forgiven by God. I'm fine. I don't need that. But you're not like that. There's a softness inside of you. You see, it's a pipto is what it is. It's a fall, but it's into the merciful hand of the Lord. You desire forgiveness. To parapipto, to fall away from the merciful hand of the Lord. It's to reject it. No, if you're going to behave that way, God, I don't want to have anything to do with you. Whoa, that's a whole different thing. To pipto, to fall, to fail, to stumble, to drop from one level to another. That's actually the official definition of the word. Parapipto, to fall beyond repair, to fail without remedy, 
to stumble without ability to rise, to drop from the edge of the eternal cliff's edge and end up in the abyss. So you can understand why when people are reading Hebrews 6, 4 through 6, and they look up the word, they're like, oh, I don't want that. I don't blame you. To peep toe. So this is the one over here, okay? This is, this is to fall into the hand of the Lord. To fall and feel convicted. To fail and desire to make amends. To stumble, but to realize that God's mercy is still present and available. To drop from one level to a lower one and then repent and return again to the higher level. And I would say that makes up a good portion of your Christian life, which is hard to sometimes grasp. And that's why you know, I have another message that I'm probably going to give next Sunday about 1 John, which is talking about you know, that if you're in Christ, you have no sin. And so it's like, how do these things work? And so there's different points, different battlefronts that the enemy tries to pull out the Order 227. And he tries to remake the nature of God, which is very clearly revealed through 66 books of Scripture. And he tries to remake it and remodel it to fit Stalin and Hitler where it doesn't. He is not like that. And isn't that been proven to us? What, a thousand, not 10,000 times over in and through Scripture? Do you not know your God who is, who was, and who always will be the same? So let's not remanufacture and recast him based on a misunderstanding. So to parapipto, okay, this is the yuck side. To fall beyond repair because you reject Christ's lone solution. To fail without remedy because the one remedy supplied is refused. To stumble without ability to rise because the outstretched hand of God's grace was declined. To drop from the edge of the eternal cliff's edge and end up in the abyss because you refused to turn around before it was too late. There's a good parental shock statement for you right there. And that's the Bible for you in a nutshell, isn't it? The Bible is saying, don't pot a peep But he's also saying it to all of us today who have stumbled, who might have a scraped knee with a little blood trickling down our shin bone right now. We're like, but God, I have evidence on me right now of a peepto. Well, then don't pot a peepto. Come to the doctor who has all the medicine in his cabinet to clean you up. At every juncture, return to him. To peepto, to fall with desire to stand back up. Have you ever had it where you make a mistake and you're really upset with yourself in it? What is your desire? You wish you didn't make the mistake. And you wish you could actually rewind the clock and redo that because that was so dumb. That's to peep You see, that's very different than doing something and self-justifying, saying, I'm fine. Very different. You fall, but with the desire to stand back up, to fail with the strong yearning to make amends, to stumble, but to crave God's mercy and full restoration, to drop from one level to a lower one, and then with tears, repent and return back to the higher level. To parapipto, oh, bad stuff, guys, bad stuff. To fall with no desire to stand back up. Well, who would do that? See, that's what's going through your mind. Probably not you. That's the point. In other words, this isn't talking about you. This is someone who doesn't want to get back up. They don't even want to be healed. They don't want to be restored. They have no yearning, no desire to be made right with the Most High God. 
To fail without desire to make amends, to stumble without any craving for God to show his mercy, to drop from the edge of the eternal cliff's edge because the barrier of pride and self-justification have prohibited a real repentance. To peep till the forgivable stumble. To <clears throat> para peep till the unforgivable, capital S, stumble, a.k.a. the sin against the Holy Spirit. You see, when you reject the one means of grace, when you reject the messenger who's saying, but he loves you, take his hand right now. He will rescue you. It's not too late. It's not too late. If you reject that hand, it is too late. The door of the ark closes, and the reign of judgment comes. You have a life. You don't know how long that life is going to last. And in this life, the Holy Spirit is after you. And if you close off to the Holy Spirit and you harden to the Holy Spirit and reject his invitation towards the mercies, the grace, the love, the kindnesses of God, then you have stumbled in a way that is unforgivable. So the base reasoning, base meaning low, vulgar. This is not God's mind. This is the reasoning that oftentimes we allow to creep into our Christianity. I stepped back in God's biblical order num number 646, that's Hebrews 646, declares me a dead man. And I know some of you have encountered this in your own soul. You've struggled with it and you've heard it from other people. It's like God won't take me back. It's impossible for me to find repentance now because I, fall, I fell away. And as a result, it becomes a paralyzing grip point. But that is base reasoning. It's not even reasoning based on the character of God. It's not based on anything in the rest of Scripture. It doesn't have its flooring in anything. The heavenly reasoning, mercy triumphs over judgment. So James 2.3, there it is, mercy triumphs over judgment. So this past week, I talked about the order of operations. Remember the algebra order of operations? So when you're trying to solve this complex problem, you start with the parentheses, then you go to the exponents, then you go to multiplication, division, then uh, addition and subtraction. Some of you are having flashbacks. I talked about math. I talked about P's, and now I talked about order of operations. It's like, wow, some of the hardest moments in your life have been brought back before you. And the same is true with God's kingdom. Do you know that he has an order of operations? And I want you to understand that to get the answer correct, you need to know his order of operations. When, when it says mercy triumphs over judgment, you pit them against each other, who wins? Mercy. You see, mercy is greater. Mercy is first in God's economy. So mercy is the first desire of God. God desires to restore you. You step back in the battle, and God immediately is there to say, I want to restore you. If you step back three steps, God's right there going, I'd like to restore you. You see, God's first movement is not judgment. God's first movement, and his second movement, and his third movement, and his fourth movement, and his fifth movement, they're mercy. God desires to give you mercy. He's looking for a way to give you mercy. He is seeking out the crevice through which he can sneak in mercy. God is not inclined towards judgment. God is inclined towards mercy. However, he is a just God. And as a result, you need to know his order of operations. So here it is, guys. M-H-S-L-S-P-F-J. So I have a, what's this called, an acronym uh, for it? 
I have an acronym for it that you can use if you'd like, and it's my half-sister Linda sews pajamas for janitors, okay? So if you want to use this, you can, but I want to explain to you the order of operations. Here it is. My half-sister Linda sews pajamas for janitors, okay? So God's going to start with mercy. First thing, out of the box, you step back, you fall, you scrape your knee. What does God have? Mercy. And that's how you need to reason. His mercies are new every morning. Mercy triumphs over judgment. So much so that all of his activities are mercy. Remember when he's teaching Peter about someone who's offended him and harmed him? And Peter, how many times uh, should you forgive? Remember, it's like, it's not just once. Seven times? Seven times I forgive? Seventy times seven. Whoa! Okay, are you getting insight into the nature of God towards us? Because if Peter is commanded to showcase the nature of God towards those that are offending him, how much more so the nature of God towards Peter? How much more so the nature of God towards you? So mercy, what is the second thing God's going to do? He is going to hunt for a reason to give mercy. Then what is he going to do? He's going to seek out a reason to give mercy. And then what is he going to do? He's going to look for a reason to give mercy. And then uh, after that, what's he going to do? He's going to search for a reason to give mercy. And then number six, probe for a reason to give mercy. And then seven, forage for a reason to give mercy. I, was, I needed a word that started with F uh, in there because I wanted it like four janitors. So I was trying to get that uh, working. And number eight, when all of that has been given, God will bring judgment. Okay, and I'm not going to say it's after, you know, seven things have been, seven times. However, that's a number of completion. Whatever that is in our life. God, I don't know how long you're going to be alive. However, it makes sense that you would respond to his mercy. That, that's like the obvious thing sitting on the table. What is this parental shock statement for? It's like, wake up. Don't take lightly the position you have. Don't take lightly the fact that you have been awakened to the divine mercy of God. Don't take lightly that you have one shot at this thing and you should be growing up unto a full maturity. You shouldn't still be dull of hearing as a little babe. You see, God wants to stir us, but not to condemn us, not to harm us in the process. He didn't shed his blood just so that he could throw us in the trash can. He shed his blood so he could redeem us. And that redemption is very, very important to him. You are very, very important to him. It's not his desire that any of you would be lost. So Ezekiel 33, 11, say to them, as I live, says the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn, turn from your evil ways. For why should you die, O house of Israel? That doesn't sound like an order 227 to me. What is God's desire? Not to shoot those that are wicked, but to actually see them live. That's talking about the wicked. It's not even talking about the righteous. How much more so the righteous? Proverbs 21, 13, whoever shuts his ears to the cry of the poor will also cry himself and not be heard. So who, you know, this is the word of God, right? So if we're demonstrating the nature of how we are supposed to relate to others, how much more so does God relate to us? The cry of the poor? Do you think God's going to hear it? You know what a violation it would be if God himself doesn't keep his own word? Well, first of all, that's impossible. 
why, that's why it's important for us to realize this is fulfilled even more so in him to perfection. Matthew 5, 7, blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. So God's not going to command you to be merciful, which is an incredible illustration of the fact that God has transformed your life if he isn't merciful. God is merciful. Micah 7, 18, who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over the transgression of the remnant of his heritage? He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in mercy. So, you know, just like Papa Ludi, Papa Ludi will get upset about crayon and pencil on the wainscoting. He'll get upset with bad attitudes at Disneyland. It's like, come on. This is the happiest place on earth, which I don't believe, by the way. Doctrinally speaking, I don't believe Disneyland is the happiest place on earth. But come on, okay? We should be happy right now. There are things that daddy will be angry with, okay? It happens, okay? I don't know if any of the other dads in here could attest to that, that when you're parenting, anger is, parental anger is a, is a thing. However, my desire is for my children to thrive. My desire is for my children to go beyond me. My desire is for my children to truly be rich in the glory of Jesus. I want them to know him. I want them to be changed by that. That's my desire. It's not for them to be disciplined. It's not for them to be harmed, to get a good notion of what they did wrong. It's only for them to be corrected so they can live free. God desires to restore you, not to condemn you. He desires to establish your footing, not shoot you on spot. God is a God of mercy. He is not like Stalin and Hitler. Isaiah 57, 15. For thus says the high and lofty one who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. I dwell in the high and holy place with him who has a contrite and humble spirit to revive. Isn't that interesting? That means something that's lost its life. To revive the spirit of the humble and to revive the heart of the contrite ones. You see, when you have humility to your failings, when you have a contrition towards your behavior, guess what? God's in the business of restoring you. In fact, he's saying, I, I want to dwell with you. You're, you're going to come to my house tonight. You see, God lives with those that are humble and contrite. This is why David is going to be a man after his own heart. It's not because he's going to live perfectly. It's because when he lived imperfectly, he was humble and contrite and fell into the hand of God and said, God, please wash me, clean, cleanse me. I want to live for you, not for me. Psalm 103, 13 through 14. As a father pities his children, so the Lord pities those who fear him. For he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. You know, that, that, that can uh, be worthy of a, a glance over every now and then, guys, to remember. You see, he's given us all we need for life and godliness. And we have really no excuse for not living robustly for Jesus. And yet, isn't it good to know that the one enthroned in heaven actually knows our frame and remembers that we are dust and that we are frail and fragile and prone and that he delights to restore us and not to just find our faults. But when we do step back, he's immediately there to encourage us to step forward. Psalm 147.3, he heals the brokenhearted and binds up their wounds. 
Jeremiah 31, 25, for I have satiated the weary soul and I have replenished every sorrowful soul. Matthew 18, 11 through 14, for the Son of Man has come to save that which was lost. What do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them goes astray? So let's just imagine that you just happen to be that one. So this man has a hundred sheep. Those sheep are precious to a shepherd. But if one goes away, remember who's talking, this is Jesus, and one of them goes astray, does he not leave the 99 and go to the mountains to seek the one that is straying? And if he should find it, uh, by the way, is straying a good idea? That's sort of like stepping back in battle. It's like, wait a minute, that's not good. So remember who we're talking about. Jesus himself is illuminating our understanding of the Father here. He goes to the mountains to seek the one that is strained. And if he should find it, assuredly I say to you, he rejoices more over that sheep than over the 99 that did not go astray. Even so, it is not the will of your Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. Fact. And the writer of Hebrews is not coming up with his own doctrine. He is establishing the same one. Remember Nineveh. Jonah knew something that many of us have obviously forgotten. It's interesting. Jonah, you know the reason he doesn't want to go to Nineveh? This is really interesting. He does not want mercy on Nineveh. And he's concerned that if he goes to Nineveh and gives them the parental shock statement, that they're going to repent. And God's going to give them mercy. He does not want the Assyrians to get mercy. The Assyrians have done such horrible things to the Jews. Such horrible things. Jonah does not want that mercy, but he knows that God is a God of mercy. Why don't we? Listen to this. Jonah 3.10 and then 4.1 through 2. Then God saw the people of Nineveh's works that they turned from their evil way. God said that he was going to destroy them. That's what God said. Parental shock statement that they turned from their evil way and God relented from the disaster that he had said he would bring upon them and he did not do it. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly and he became angry. So he prayed to the Lord and said, "Ah, Lord, was not this what I said when I was still in my country? Therefore I fled previously to Tarshish. For I know that you are a gracious and merciful God, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness, one who relents from doing harm. Jonah knows it. In the Old Testament, he knew that. Do we know it? We have such a manifold representation and revelation of the nature and the mercy of our God before us. Let us not fall for the devil's game. So, impossible. We have some different impossibilities. It's like, okay, okay. I I can see that, yeah, God could restore this. One step back in battle, Yeah, all right. So I could see God coming up and not being like Hitler and Stalin. All right, I got that. Let's go through some impossibilities that may come into our mind. But what if a child of God sins and sins terribly and doesn't immediately turn from their sin? Okay, well, I mean, that obviously has to be the fall away category then. I mean, that's that's really dangerous. And yet God is going to go out of his way to show that exact thing. David's failure with Bathsheba and then his murder of Uriah with a creative cover-up, this is not just happening in one day. This is a series of time. This is a passage of time. And David, out of all the guys, I mean, David, you should know better. And yet, 
David, for a long passage of time, is not going to see it until the prophet Nathan comes to him and gives him a parental shock statement. And David is going to awaken from his stupor, and he is going to be soft of, of heart, and he is going to repent. So, you can answer the question right there. God is going to show his nature and his character in the dealings with his people. What if a child of God departs from his father's house, forsakes everything he once knew, and spends a season in amongst the pigs? Of course, that's the story that's going to follow up the sheep story, even. And we're going to see Jesus himself giving a picture of a father and the father's response to a son who lived in the house, who took all the goods of the house and misspent it, and is, I mean, making a, a mockery of his father's house. I mean, come on, this is that his son? And what's the father doing the whole time? Fogging up the windows, looking for the return of his son. Is that father inclined towards judgment or mercy? You answer that. And that's a pretty serious crime. And he is inclined towards mercy. In fact, he's going to throw a party. He's going to give you know, his robe and his ring. I mean, this is... That's too much. And God is going, Jesus is going out of his way in and through this story to show how much mercy he has. How about this? But what if a child of God denies the Son of God and even curses in so doing? Whoa. I mean, guys, I don't know. If we were you know, just sort of voting and I had pieces of paper and you were like choosing, I mean, that's pretty serious. And yet that's the story of Peter. Peter is going to really blow it here. And I'm guessing Peter was really struggling with the idea of being restored as well. And yet Jesus is not just going to restore him, he's going to use him to change the world. What if a child of God makes a lewd and drunken scene? Well, we do have an illustration of that. It's a little awkward. Uh, but remember Noah's fall? And remember that God is going to praise the covering of Shem and Japheth when they back up and cover it? You see, what are they showing, and why is that so good? It's because that's what God would do. God has a covering for our lewdness and our behaviors that are unseemly. They do not match with the kingdom of heaven. He has a covering. It's called the shed blood of Jesus. But what if a child of God throws the truth in a pit and sells it for silver? Do you remember uh, the sons of Jacob are going to really blow it here? I mean, technically, as far as they're concerned, they're going to lie to their dad. They're going to take that coat of many colors, cover it with blood, and they're going to lie and say that he was killed. But for all practical purposes, they think he's gone forever. They think he's dead. Joseph's dead. So they are, in essence, murderers and liars. Everything about this is very dark. And yet what you're going to see is you're going to see Joseph's response to them. You're going to see him offer mercy. You're going to see a picture of the heart of God. This is merely a man. And yet you're going to see Joseph, who has every reason to judge them. They come in under his power and his authority, and he is in a position to bring judgment. Instead, what is he going to do? He is going to show mercy. So I'm finishing with this one line. <clears throat> Let's remember his great mercy. I don't know what you've personally struggled with in this area, but it never hurts for us to rekindle and to cherish the mercy of God. Now, Paul makes it very clear. You know, where sin abounds, grace much more abounds. The same is true. That's the same principle. 
In other words, where you have sinned, what you will find is that God will meet you in that area and actually establish you even stronger through it. It's like his grace seems to multiply in its effect in and through our humble contrition. So Paul says, so should we then go on sinning that grace could abound? He's like, God forbid. Why would you do that? You see, the whole point is to establish. It's like the older son in the, in the story of the prodigal going, what, should I leave now so I can get a party? No, you shouldn't leave. You have the privilege of the house all the time. By the way, it's not that fun to wallow in your shame and you know, flounder around with your conviction and to have the devil jump on your back in the midst of that. The fact that God can take you and reestablish you, beautiful. But who in the world would want to do that, to violate your closeness and intimacy with the Most High God? Walk the narrow way and walk it with the grace you've received. And yet don't forget the mercy of God along the way. Father, I ask that you would demonstrate your mercy to us afresh. For those that are stuck in that mire of self-focus and that mire of condemnation, Lord, I pray that you would lift it and that you would remind them that in Christ Jesus there is no condemnation. Lord, I ask that you would just refresh our understanding of who you are. And if Jonah can understand your mercy, Lord, we should understand your mercy. Lord, here we are, a very imperfect people clothed in your perfect robe of righteousness. We cherish it afresh. For without it, Lord, we have no salvation. But with it, we have an eternal hope. We love you and we trust you. It's in the precious name we pray this. Amen. This message was brought to you by the team at Ellerslie Discipleship Training. At Ellerslie, we are laboring to rouse the Church of Jesus Christ out of its lethargy and build brave-hearted Christians for such a time as this. Listen to our weekend message live at 9 a.m. on Sunday mornings, or join us for Daily Thunder Monday through Friday at 8.15 a.m. For more information, go to live.ellerslie.com. We invite you to visit us at the beautiful Ellerslie campus in Windsor, Colorado for a day, a week, or an entire season of gospel-centered spiritual training. Learn more at ellersley.com. Thanks for listening.